high and the mighty will fall. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. We have a most fascinating guest. Jeff Slate is a musician, songwriter, author, columnist, and all-around good guy. He will be performing on Mar- on uh, May 25th at the Sacred Heart uh, Music Center, along with his partner Mark Bosch, as part of Dylan Days in Duluth. He's got a superb opening act, followed by the name of Paul Metza with Harmonica Wiz, Sonny <laughs> Earl. And we're looking forward. We had Jeff on a few years ago when he had a record out. We've never met in person, so I'm personally looking forward to that. But before we get Jeff on, I'm going to brag a little about this guy. Uh, I don't know where he finds enough time in the day, but his uh, work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Journal, Rolling Stone, Esquire, and The New Yorker, among others. And uh, he wrote uh, uh, the authorized Roy Orbison book, along with the late legend Son. And he has written uh, liner notes for The Small Faces, Sean Colvin, for Stax Records' 60th anniversary reissue, The Beatles' 50th anniversary edition of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and in 2018, Slate wrote the 10,000-word essay included in Bob Dylan's More Blood, More Tracks. He doesn't stop this guy. He also wrote something for the Rolling Stones. And uh, we don't have to talk about it right away, but because the, this will be airing as the kickoff to Dylan week up in the Twin Ports, he also interviewed Bob Dylan for the Wall Street Journal. And not many people can say that. Jeff, how are you tonight? I hope I can live up to that introduction. I'm I'm doing great, Paul. How are you? <laughs> Good, man. Now, well, let's talk about uh, Jeff Slate, the musician. Where did it all start? Wow. Uh, you know, I was bit by the bug really early. I I heard the Beatles, and that changed my life. I saw Little Richard on the Mike Douglas show, of all places. Sure. And that that was, you know sort of an epiphany as a, as a youngster rated my, I had older, uh, an older brother and sister. I rated their record collections and started, you know, just digging into anything I could get my hands on. Uh, came to Bob Dylan by way of the birds, like, like many young kids did, you know, I was that a little may, Yeah, that makes two of us. Mr. Tambourine yeah, Man. I mean, I, you know, I, I had the, some of the Dylan records from the sixties, uh, in that pile that I inherited, but they were, you know, they were a little weird for me at, you know, six or seven or eight years old. So, uh, so I, but I fell in love with the birds and there was of course the picture on the back and I, you know, I wanted to know who this guy was. And, and so then I discovered Dylan and, and then, you know, when I was coming of age in the late seventies, I was a real fan of the small faces and the kinks and the who and the Jam and the Clash, who were contemporary at the time, and I uh, had my first band, and we started playing around, and, and it sort of took off from there in the 80s. I was in a band called the Mindless Thinkers that got named by Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols, and then and then in the in the 90s, I worked with Pete Townsend. He produced some some demos for me, which are actually, we're going to release a 30th anniversary record later this year. And then I was in a band called The Badge, who did not so much business here in the U.S., but a lot did really well in Europe and the U.K. and Japan. 
and then, you know, life changed, and I, I was raising two kids, and the music business changed, so I came off the road for a while and started the writing thing. And then around 2010, you know, the band was sort of difficult to corral. Everybody's lives had moved on, so I started a solo thing, and, and that's where we find Jeff Slate today. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a pretty intriguing and interesting uh, backstory. i got to ask you, uh, have you had a chance to hang out with Jonesy of the Sex Pistols? Oh, we're still very, very tight. I mean, I texted, I literally texted with him yesterday. So um, I've been on his radio show when he had Jonesy's jukebox out in L.A. People can look that up on on YouTube because it's a longer version of what we're doing here today. Uh, and, and it's also, we play, we play a song of mine together. I mean, we, you know, we kept in touch remarkably when there wasn't social media. I'm not sure how we did it, right. but then when social media kicked in and it was easier and, and obviously, you know, texting and cell phones and whatever, uh, we reconnected and I've interviewed him a bunch of times and we've hung out here in New York city when he's been in town and I've hung out with him out there in LA where he lives now, um, and I got to give a plug. He's he's got a new band with he and Paul Cook from the Pistols and Billy wow. Idol and Tony James from from Generation X, and they call it Generation Sex. And they're going out <laughs> on the road. So yeah, I'll, I'll I'll give I'll give Jonesy a plug. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, perfect name for Jonesy's new band. I've got his. Uh, I'm very well acquainted with his autobiography which i really enjoyed amazing and, uh, book amazing book yeah he is he's a really funny guy whole no holds yeah. barred with that dude nope no i mean and, keith richards wishes he was as honest as steve jones <laughs> i mean he's the real pirate you know i mean he's like he's the real deal rock and roll star at a time when you know, people are trying to be careful, thread the needle in their exploits. Nope, he puts it all out there. It's a great. I I reviewed that book and interviewed him for Esquire about five years ago, and and I I really encourage people to pick it up. It's an amazing. Yeah, it's yeah, an amazing great, tale. Yeah, and a great uh, raconteur. Uh, Jeff Slate, you've also uh, performed and are buddies with. Uh, People like Earl Slick from uh, Bowie's band, uh, David Bowie's band, and Carlos Alomar, also from uh, John Lennon, David Bowie. And what I really kind of dug, you uh, uh, you've got an association with, uh, with uh, uh, who's whom uh, McDuff for, or Duff uh, Duff. Uh, oh yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, what's, yeah, yeah Duff, well, well, Duff. Yeah, so so Duff, I knew huh, back in the battle days in L.A. in the nineties. Uh, which neither of us particularly remember, but we did a charity show together about five years ago. And like Jonesy, we reconnected. And, you know, when you have a, a shared history, even if it's, you know, way there in the past and, and you know, kind of tangential, it, it still connects you when you're a musician. So he plays on a, a track of mine. I'm, I've got a new record coming out later this year, and there's a, a we're going to, play it i think later in the show um he plays duff on uh, uh he plays bass on the album and he's amazing i mean people sort of pigeonhole him because he's in guns and roses but he's a real deal bass player and and just an amazing guy really and i have to say when i interviewed bob dylan he he's one of the songwriters that bob mentioned by name 
as, you know, being sort of a great songwriter. And so, uh, you know, that if people if, if people can't take that seriously, I don't know what they can. <laughs> oh, that's that's freaking amazing. Jeff, now, uh, because it's uh, we're really happy, uh, the folks are that are putting the Dylan days together and bless them. They've got about six or seven nights of music uh, coming up in the Twin Ports starting tonight in uh, Superior. Uh, tell us about what it was like to interview Bob Dylan for the Wall Street Journal. Well, ah, wow. <laughs> As I as I often say when people ask that question, my NDA has an NDA. But I, I I will tell you this, you know, you never know what to expect when you're offered an opportunity like that. And I've certainly interviewed my share of famous people or or musicians that I have always loved and admired. And and I think, um, you know. Very rarely do you, do I get nervous. You know, Willie Nelson was one where halfway through the interview, I couldn't believe it was, you know, it's like his voice. Willie, Willie is only, you know, there's only one person who's Willie Nelson. Oh, yeah. uh, whereas a lot of guys, they're just, you know, when you get down to it, they're pretty regular. But, you know, di- interviewing Bob Dylan is, is another level of, I, I remember when I was talking to my editors at the Wall Street Journal and I presented it to them and they said, you know, well, we do a lot of A-list interviews. This shouldn't be a problem. And I said, no, this, this, isn't, like, this isn't like George Clooney plugging his movie or, or even Obama. This is like another level of, of, you know, again, threading the needle, trying to get the best you can out of it, but also just coordinating the logistics of trying to pin down a guy like Bob Dylan. So um, it took about, it took over two months for it to happen. Once it was, once Bob agreed to do it, it still took, it still took two months. Um, And then, and then it was over in a flash. I mean, that's the crazy thing about it. It was, you know, I'd I'd periodically get these calls. Oh, he's going to call at 11 o'clock tonight. And then he wouldn't. And then he's going to call at this time. And then he wouldn't. And then, you know, it's going to happen, you know, either, either tonight or tomorrow at noon, and I thought, well, it's probably not. It was already in New York midnight, and I thought, well, it's probably not going to happen tonight. He'll probably he'll probably get to this tomorrow because he was out in L.A. He had been on the road, but then he was out in L.A., I guess. And and sure enough, you know, like uh, an hour forty five minutes later, it was all over, and it it I got to say it's. You know, you never know, like I said at the beginning, you never know what you're going to get when you interview somebody like Bob Dylan. Is he going to be cagey or, you know, sort of duck and weave when you ask questions? He was completely engaged. He was really interested in what we, you know, what we were discussing. It was ostensibly pegged his book, The Philosophy of Modern Song. But, you know, it was was weirdly for this tech gear and gadgets column in the wall street journal which is i think why he agreed to it it wasn't going to be how did you write blowing in the wind or hard rain is going to fall it was going to be a little bit off center and i think he liked you know i presented some sort of you know general bullet points you know this is what we might talk about and and i got word back from his management that he liked it and so um he was very open and he was very interested in talking about you know, his pandemic experience was much like the rest of ours and what he watched on TV and what he 
you know, he like refurbished the Chevy and he listened to Peggy <laughs> Lee and he, you know, watched Coronation Street. You know, everybody's talked about this online, but I think when after it was over and I was the only person except for his, I guess, assistant who was privy to what he had just talked about, I think it was I think it was pretty mind blowing that this had happened. You know, now it's over. And I didn't even know if it was any good. I didn't know if it was going to be something people were going to be interested in. And of course they were. I didn't need to worry about that. But, um, you know, people have said to me they think it's one of his better interviews, certainly in the last 20 years. And, of course, he doesn't do many anymore. So, um, you know, it, it was an honor, and it was mind-blowing. And, look, as a kid who looked at those records as, as a young whippersnapper in suburban Connecticut imagining myself with an acoustic guitar playing, you know, something <laughs> like it someday, to then be talking to the guy who really wrote the book on being, you know, the modern rock store, or the modern songwriter, uh, you know, when it's all done and dusted, that'll be on my tombstone or my, you know, my, uh, my obituary, and, and I'm pretty happy with that i think it's it's well, it was I, I, it was an honor what else can what else can you say i want to uh, suggest to any listeners out there in the wall of power radio our audience to track that down if you can figure out how to get around the paywall in the wall street journal um by all means read the interview jeff you did a great job with that thank you thank you i think there's there's a link if you go to my my Twitter or my website or my Facebook, there's a link to my link tree, which is like all my various things. And if they go to that, they can get tickets for the Dylan Fest, but they can also, I think there's a free link to both versions of the Wall Street Journal article, and there's also a link to the full transcript, which is on Bob Dylan's site. So if they want to read the whole thing, they can go there. But I think there's a free link to the journal version, which I encourage people to, to read because I think it gives you kind of a little insight into, uh, you know, what, what we thought editorially was the most interesting. And you can, you can tell me if you thought we were wrong. <laughs> now, uh, Jeff, tell the folks out there what, uh, if they want to go to Jeff Slate's website, which I encourage people to do, because uh, it's a great website with a lot of info and music. Uh, what is your URL for the Jeff Slate uh, website? It is Jeff Slate HQ. So you can uh, you can find pretty much anything about me there, and links to most things that I've written, and books that I've written, and merch, and upcoming gigs, and the calendar of dates. And you can buy tickets, as I said, for the Duluth Dylan Fest. So please go there. <laughs> now, are you also doing a Dylan? Uh, Theme performance around New York City at some point around this time. Did I read? Yeah, we. we so this is I. Th I think this is our tenth, our tenth birthday celebration. We we have a residency, um, since then for about the last ten years at a place called Hill Country, which is a sort of Americana themed restaurant here on West Twenty Sixth Street. We're doing that tomorrow night, which is, I don't know when this is going to air, but that'll be on the 19th. Uh, and then um, and then the following day, we're doing an acoustic gig here in New York City, and then we've got rehearsals, and then we head to Duluth, and then we're back to upstate New York to do another Dylan Fest, and then we hit the road to uh, Tulsa to play the Switchyard Festival, and then I'll be appearing with Margot Price at the Switchyard Festival for the World of Bob Dylan Conference. Uh, 
And then we're back here again for uh, a David Bowie convention, which is going to be here in New York City. And then, you know, we've just got a, like a full summer of, of dates, whether they're acoustic or full band or whatever. It's busy. You know, we're back to almost normal here in, in the world of live music, which is nice. I got, I'm going to have to take a nap after listening to all that. <laughs> you tired me out, Slate. <laughs> hey, Jeff, tell us about the song I want to hear next, Heartbreak, your song. Well, you, you raised it earlier. I, Earl Slick, who I've now worked with for almost 15 years, uh, and Duff is on it. Um, a couple of the guys from Paul Weller's band, the English rock star, the Mod Father, and uh, Lee, uh, Lee Harris from Nick Mason's band, Saucer Full of Secrets. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool song. There's an animated video on YouTube if people like what they hear and they want to see a cartoon version of Jeff Slay playing it. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things that came up during the pandemic. Slick and I were going to go out on tour, but that got scuttled. And so we had time set aside anyway to write and record an album. So I was stuck at home and he was stuck at home. And we did that mostly by, you know, sort of phone and messages and so forth. And, and, uh, you know, sent the files around to everybody and they were able to put their mark on it. And then we we once things loosened up a little bit and there was you know there were vaccinations and we could be safely in a recording studio we went to a studio up in connecticut and spent about a week there finishing that track and the rest of the album so you know that's the story of heartbreak but that was you know it was you know it was it was a moment in time that i think most people can relate to i wanted to write about what i was experiencing but not write about you know the lockdown i mean nobody wants to hear your experience when they've all experienced it but they you know i think they want to hear about what you were feeling because they can relate to that so i think that was let's, uh, that was where that song to, came let's up. listen to uh, let's listen to heartbreak by jeff slate then we'll have him on for the rest of the show on the wall of power radio hour <laughs> Yeah. 
Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour, set two. This is your host, Paul Messer, with my guest, Jeff Slate, who will be appearing with his buddy, Mark Bosch, on May 25th at the Sacred Heart Music Center in Duluth, Minnesota. Opening act, Paul Metz and Sonny Earl. It's going to be a great night of music. Jeff, um, how do you find time to do all this? I mean, you're writing, you got a family, you're playing live, you're, you you got a million things going on. How do you how do you keep everything straight? I like to be busy. It keeps me out of trouble, Paul. You know that. You know, <laughs> musicians have an innate ability to get in all sorts of trouble, even at our age. Um, I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, I've look. I've I've always been a guy who. I think you, you make your opportunities, and I think you make your luck. And so if you're not out there, things don't happen. And, and whether it's, you know, we're playing a, an acoustic gig at a flea market here in New York City uh, on Saturday, and I'm happy to do that just as much as I am to play Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Sacred Heart in Duluth. You know, I mean, I think you... You never know where the next gig is going to come from, where your next fan is going to come from, where the next opportunity or inspiration is going to come from. So I think if you if you put yourself out there, whether it's creatively as a musician or as a recording artist or as a writer um, or just as a person, I, I think the the more you're engaged with the world around you, the more you're going to get from it and, and the more you're going to be inspired. Do you get? Uh, do you have time, Jeff Slate, to go out and hear other music? And if so, what what do you listen to, either in the clubs or at home? I don't. I don't get out much because it's funny. I, I remember when I was working with Pete Townsend. I'll drop a name. When I was working with Pete Townsend in the nineties, um, there would always be people in town that he knew, and that I would want to go see. And I would say to him, "Hey, let's go see." Marianne Faithful or Brian Wilson or, you know, who, the Black Crows and Jimmy Page or whoever it was. And he would say, oh, you know what, man, that's, that's work. <laughs> and and yeah. the only time I could get him to do it was we went to see, believe it or not, 
um, Madonna at Madison Square Garden on the Vogue tour because I guess that was that didn't connect so much to his day job and and I think um, I relate to that a little bit now at 56 years old that you know unless it's a really good friend who's passing through town and they want me to play with them or they're you know haven't seen him in a long time I'm pretty busy and I don't get to see enough live music I did get to go see. Uh, Bono's one-man show at the Beacon Theater here a couple weeks ago. I went to see a couple of Elvis Costello's shows when he did 10 or 12 shows here in New York City to a little a little place, the Gramercy Theater, which is only about 500 people um, back in February. And, you know, so if it's a special occasion, I, I do try to make it out, and I do try to see my, my friends' bands as much as possible. Um, but there aren't enough, like you said, you know, you were joking about it, but it's true, there aren't enough hours in the day to do your own thing and support every friend you have who's a musician when you've been doing it as long as we have. There's just, almost everybody in my life plays some kind of role in a band one way or another, whether they're, you know, roadies or managers or backing, you know, sidemen or front guys, and so it's, you know, I, I don't see enough is, is the answer to it. But I, I listen to a lot at home, and I try to keep tabs on what's going on. And, you know, so, now, but yeah, not know, enough hours in the day. I got, so what was it like when you're working with Pete Townsend, which I can imagine the first meeting's got to be, put a little fear of God in your heart. But once you guys got comfortable in the studio, what, did he tell you anything about recording um, or anything else that you could share, uh, maybe pass on a little of Townsend's knowledge to the rest of us? Well, yeah, I mean, Pete is, a, Pete is an imposing figure just because, I mean, his reputation is, he's such a, you know, physical and, and charismatic presence. But I, I got lucky. I met him, I met him at a, he missed the plane, and I was leaving for a tour the next day, so we both ended up at a mutual friend's birthday party, and ended up, he and his friend Barney, who named The Who, actually, and I wow. ended up in a, in a big group going out drinking afterward, and, and then we were the three left standing at the end of the night, and he invited, he gave me his phone number and said, you know, let's keep in touch, and, and I didn't. I didn't really feel comfortable doing that when I passed through London, though I did, I did keep tabs with Barney. But then, just by coincidence, he, he was dating my girlfriend at the time's best friend. So we wow. would go out, as guys do, on double dates, and, you know, they would end up doing talking about whatever they were talking about, and we would end up talking about what we would talk about. And it wasn't music. It was usually books he was reading or films one of us had seen or, you know, just things around New York City. And we got comfortable around each other. And then he was on his psychoderelic tour. And I remember backstage after, after the Brooklyn Academy show, I kind of cornered him and said, you know, hey. And he wasn't happy because I was just, I became another guy who was a friend who then was asking him for a favor. But he said, look, come out on the road, you know, just travel around with me for a few days and let's talk about this. And every night after the show, we'd go to the bar and we'd just sit and, and talk about how this would work. And, and one of the things I remember was um, around that same time, and I write about this in the liner notes for More Blood, More Tracks, that, you know, I was, I was sitting in a bar in, in New York City and he walked in 
and very, very like with a lot of pomp and circumstance through blood on the tracks and freewheeling on on the on the bar, and said, you know, you know, do you know these records? And of course, you know, obviously I knew those records, but he meant something different. We talked about him. What he meant was, do you really understand what's going on? not just as a songwriter, but as a performer. And he sort of gave me a challenge to learn one of those songs, you know, pick sort of a hard song. And, and I ended up picking Idiot Wind and try to learn it and try to perform it, not like you're covering Bob Dylan, but inhabit the song and try to give it your own spin and, and not just remember the words, but really, you know, perform it for people in a way that... And I remember I, I thought, oh, no problem. And I, I, was, I had an acoustic gig down on the infamous Bleecker Street Row back then, and I played it one night. I played Idiot when I remember walking home with my girlfriend at the time being, like, kind of dejected because I, I understood what he meant. I'd, I'd remembered all the words, and the crowd was thrilled because I'd just gotten through it because it's a long song with a lot of words. But I remember thinking there wasn't any heart or soul in it. And I think that's what he was really getting at. Whether you're writing or performing or recording, you got to put, you know, you got to be there 100% and not just, you know, it's, it, you're, not, you're not in a Beatle band or a Bob Dylan band putting on a wig and a costume. You're, you're, you're your own person. And if you can own that performance in your own right, then you're on the path to being a real performer, a real creative artist. And I think that took me a really long time to get to and understand, but I think that's, you know, part of it is doing it every day, but part of it is letting down your guard so that if you make some mistakes, that's okay if you're 100% in the moment. That's, uh, that's wonderful advice. Uh, coming to you through Jeff Slate from Pete Townsend, and... Uh, Without giving away your set list up at the Sacred Heart in Duluth on uh, May 25th, might we be hearing Idiot Wind? Oh, I hadn't thought about Idiot Wind. It's, you know, we only <laughs> we have a limited amount of time, and it's a long song, so I'd have to think about, yeah, maybe, if that's a personal request, Paul Mensa, I might, I might do it just for you. Um I'm honored, but I but I hadn't I hadn't thought of it, you know. But sure, I mean, you know, look, I I want to definitely do something from uh, Blood on the Tracks because of the connection to Minnesota, and because of my connection to all the musicians there who didn't get the the credit that they deserve for so long. And I worked with Kevin Odegaard and and Jeff Rosen in in Bob Dylan's office to make sure in that box set, they all got credit where credit was due because they really elevated that record when it was, you know, a little bit drab as at the first version of it was just acoustic takes one after the other. And I think Bob realized really quickly, and we can certainly see that he was looking for something greater than just a series of acoustic takes. And the Minnesota guys, you know, Kevin and the other Minnesota guys, really helped elevate that record in a way that people maybe don't recognize enough and I think should. So there'll be something, sure. And Idiot Wind might be it. 
Beautiful. Well, you know, I'll put a little plug here. I co-wrote a book after a series of interviews I did with all the guys in Blood on the Tracks who I reunited in 2001 for Dylan's 60th birthday at First Avenue. First time they'd all gotten together since the sessions in December 74. And uh, the University of Minnesota Press will be releasing Blood in the Tracks the Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece on September 12th. And we've been invited down to your buddy and mine, Steve Jenkins, and invited us down to the Bob Dylan Center to do a little uh, discussion and performance. So between your liner notes and the book that's coming out, I think those uh, six gentlemen will finally be f represented in the way they always should have been. Tell us about... Uh, writing the liner notes for more blood more tracks and and I have to compliment you uh, Jeff Rosen and the and Bob Dylan's management management team have to have a lot of uh, 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 Love for your work and trust in uh, how you present in this case What's a 10,000 word essay? Yeah Yeah, I mean it was originally commissioned as only about I think 2,500 words, maybe 3,000 words, but once you dig into that story, I, I didn't feel it did it justice. There's a shorter version of, of the essay in the, the, two CD, or the one CD version and the, and the vinyl, but to tell it for the, the box set and all five CDs, you really needed that much space to give everybody their, their due. Look, it was, I had, I had known, um, Jeff Rosen and the people at Sony and the people in, in Bob's office for quite a while. At that point, we had a good relationship. I'd worked on some document. I worked on a documentary for the 1966 tour when Jeff was out of town and he just couldn't do it. He deputized me to sit in for him. I mean, we, we had a good re working relationship. And then I was on, I was literally on the bus, a New York City bus coming home from parent teacher conferences. <laughs> and he called and said, can you, can you come in now? And I couldn't make it before he was leaving, but I went in the next morning and he told me why. And he played me the, the very, very raw tapes sitting there in his office that nobody up to that point had heard. And it just wow. blew my mind. And, and to be asked to do that particular box set um, was... You know, it's it's a real gift, not just as a writer and Bob Dylan fan, but as somebody who has a, a relationship with that music as a performer and writer, songwriter. You know, it was it was one of those one of those moments where you kind of pinch yourself and says, say, "Is this real?" It's your name in the press and on Wikipedia and whatever associated with Bob Dylan, even in a small way, is just a dream come true. So, But I have to say, they let me do whatever I wanted. There were almost no edits at all. They just let me tell the story. Um, at the very end, Bob had a couple of comments, and, and that was really it. And I thought that was just, um, you know, a really special thing to have them be, you know, you tell the story the way you want to. We're dealing with the music. And I just thought that's a, that's a really graceful way to deal with a creative person. Jeff, you are a very lucky human being. <laughs> I am. I, I, I really am, yeah. When's the, when's the last time you saw Dylan live? Uh, well, he was here um, just after the pandemic lifted, maybe in, I think, the fall of 
2020, I guess it was, uh, at the Beacon Theater. You know, he does his run at the Beacon Theater pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, so I, after Rough and Rowdy Ways came out, I, I saw him then. Um, but I, you know, I don't think I've missed Bob since, gosh, you know, I saw him the first time with Petty and the Heartbreakers in 86. And then, you know, because I was a kid and finances are such as they are, I would see him every couple of years then um, through till about 96 or 97. And then I think since then, uh, you know, around the time of Time Out of Mind or Love and, Love and Theft, I don't think I've missed him since then. They're, they're probably have, I've seen him with Willie Nelson, and I've seen him at baseball parks, and I've seen him, you know, at, at Forest Hill Stadium where he played in the 60s, you know, with Mavis Staples. I, every chance I get, I, I go to see him, and every every opportunity uh he never disappoints as far as i'm concerned whether it's the bob dylan you want him to give you is not really the issue i feel like you know any given night he gives you the bob dylan he wants to be and we should be happy that we get to see that even you know a small slice of that that sort of creativity and 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 uh talent it's just it blows my mind every time and that's uh, the definition of a true artist. Jeff, in uh, 30 seconds or less, number one, Jeff Slate will be uh, performing with Mark Bosch at the Sacred Heart Music Center as part of Dylan Days in Duluth, Minnesota, March 25th, with openers Paul Metz and Sonny Earl. Thanks so much for your time. Give us a little 30-second description of Handle With Care that we're going to be listening to next. Oh, well, back, you know, I've always played that song. I've always loved that song. As far as I'm concerned, the Traveling Wilburys are the only rock and roll supergroup ever. Um, and, a, and a couple of years ago, when it was Tom Petty's 70th birthday, we got contacted because I have a long history with the band, and I knew Tom just a little bit and his, his widow, Dana, and they asked us to contribute a version of something by Tom. And I picked that, and we just... This was during the pandemic as well. We went into a recording studio and we were, we were as safe as possible, and we filmed it, and it's 100% live. So that's what Beautiful. I love about that take, is that's what we sound like. Beautiful, Jeff. I look forward to meeting you and hearing you travel safe, and we'll have more to chat about when you get up to the Twin Ports. I can't wait. I look forward to meeting everybody and, and hope to see you all soon. Been beat up, been mad around Been seen up and I've been shot down You're the best thing that I've ever found Handle me with care Reputation's changeable Situation's tolerable Baby, you're adorable Yeah, I've been robbed and ridiculed 
Been stuck in airports terrorized Center meetings hypnotized Overexposed commercialized Everybody's got somebody to lean on Put your body next to mine And dream on I've been uptight and made a mess But I clean it up myself, I guess Oh, the sweet smell of success Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show is produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Brett Johnson. We'd like to thank our guest, Jeff Slate. His website is jeffslatehq.com. My book, Alphabet Jazz, Poetry, Prose, Stories, and Songs, available on Amazon. Also at the Electric Fetus in Minneapolis. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy. The high and the mighty will fall There will be no power brokers, the wall of power will fall.